Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, our guest is going to be focusing on probably the number one problem that's confronting people all around the world, and that is climate change. My guest is an expert in this area. Paula DePerna is a pioneer and leader at the forefront of finance and climate, climate policy from the old office to Antarctica, coral reefs to carbon markets. She served as president of CCX International, the world's first expansive emissions trading system to address global warming. She also previously wrote with the uh, Jacques Cousteau Society, and her latest book is Pricing the Priceless, the Financial Transformation to Value the Planet, Solve the Climate Crisis, and Protect Our Most Precious Assets. Paula DePerna, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. I'm we delighted. like Global Connections. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. And I love the title of your book. It covers it all. And if we can do all this, we'll save the planet. So we're going to try. But just jump right into it. Why did you write the book at this point in time? Well, because I, you know, I've been germinating this for some time and um, uh, wondering what, you know, what was really wrong, why. <clears throat> it just started not to make sense to me that that, that um, the atmosphere was worth basically nothing and uh, doodads, let's call them, coffee makers, uh, um, you know, uh, new kinds of gadgetry, uh, an upgraded iPhone, Uber. We value all these things somehow in the billions of dollars ultimately and the atmosphere many of those doodads are really dispensable things and we don't actually quote need them but the things we need like the atmosphere we value it essentially zero and i just felt that if i could dig into that dichotomy and contradiction you know i might come up with something and i like to think that i did but you know we until we kind of reconcile this paradox that um, the best things in life are free, but as you know, if everything is free, you kind of abuse it or take too much of it. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet, and we can't have that for nature. Using our natural resources, polluting our air and the oceans and what have you, so we have a, a major challenge. Well, what have we done in the past, uh, just to give a little context, have we put too much emphasis on global domestic product, the GDP, on the bottom line of profits, of human satisfaction, consumption, and those types of things. And if we have, what can we do differently now to reevaluate and to basically reappraise what's important to us and for us to keep our society and, and our environment sustainable? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, we don't necessarily have to blame ourselves because, you know, things that are clear now weren't clear 50 or 100 years ago for sure. But, you know, the character that's been missing in our economic measurements has been nature. We've just assumed that nature was something around us and uh, was there to feed our economy and it was a raw material and how much gold can we get out of the ground, how much oil, you know, we just didn't conceptualize these resources as assets. We conceptualized them as usable uh, resources. And when something is conceptualized as an asset, on the other hand, you kind of maintain it. You don't try to squander it as fast as possible. You know, you, you build a bridge, you charge people to use it and you maintain the bridge. Uh, whereas if you, um, 
regard, say, forests, not as infrastructure, but as just a source of material, it's true that you have to maintain it to keep having the material, but things have gotten out of whack and we've gotten to an, a level of exploitation that's no longer sustainable for lack of control. So I think, you know, the missing ingredient, the GDP is never really, the GDP is just a, ma a measurement of all the production that we have. It doesn't take account of what is underpinning that, that, uh, that production. And where we are now is that nature, the value of nature, which, you know, is tricky to manage and measure, but can be done uh, now, uh, the value of that is extraordinary. Some estimates are as high as $125 trillion a year, which is more than global GDP. But even if it's half of global GDP, which is a low end number, that's a significant amount of subsidy into the GDP that um, you know we don't account for. So really our GDP is half what it we think it is if we start accounting for nature. So bottom line is we've got to put another character on the stage and that's nature. We're starting to take into consideration now the value of preserving our forests, preserving our landscape, uh, the, looking at the natural resources that we have and giving value to them as far as just saying, well, again, I, I reference that GDP because that seemed to be the uh, sort of the hitching post for most economists and e e uh, folks who use economic models. But are we really moving into that direction now and and giving value to these items that we've taken for granted for really forever, probably? Yeah, well, that's, you know, the heart of the book is really some of these new examples. I mean, you have a flow of, uh, of investment, general investment, that is going to, you know, environmental ESG, as you know, um, it's a very significant amount of money that is invested in the United States and the world, for that matter, is screened uh, for its environmental impact, <clears throat> excuse me, before the money is invested. But as you also probably know, this has now become a kind of culture war and pushback and some states uh, in the United States have now prohibited their pension funds from investing in ESG funds because they think it's some outlandish form of underpinning, undermining capitalism. But be that as it may, that's a political battle. There are these fascinating new inventions whose very purpose is not only to measure environmental impact, but introduce environmental um, maintenance. And uh, for example, this forest resilience bond, which I've devoted a whole chapter to, is fascinating because what it does is quantify the benefits, the economic benefits of a resilient forest to all the beneficiaries. And that's a disparate group that doesn't necessarily come together. And who are those beneficiaries? I mean, they are obviously lumber products companies, but also hydropower companies that need water in the water table, which forests retain. Uh, also insurance companies, which are basically going broke and certainly in states like California, trying to pay claims for wildfires and now aren't even going to write insurance in California for new mortgages because of the wildfire risk. And tourism operators who would like to have, you know, a, 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 a comfort level that if they push uh, wildlife for tourism, the, the tourists will not be endangered. So you have a multiple uh, uh, set of, of beneficiaries who have qu quantifiable gains if the forest doesn't burn. 
But how do you prevent the forest from burning if you don't have enough public taxpayer money to do the forest maintenance? And you don't because most of the time the budgets that are devoted for forest forest maintenance are stretched because a lot of that money is now going to, to put fires out. So the money to prevent forest fires is being diverted to put out fires because there's more and more of them. So you have a vicious cycle. So how do you get money up front? And this forest resilience bond does exactly that. It goes to the private market and to some philanthropies and says, if you put some capital up front and issue a bond that securitizes these future benefits, you get paid back by the beneficiaries when they realize those benefits and all the risk that the benefits don't materialize is on the investors, not on the government and not on the workers in the forest. So you, you somehow create, you know, money is just what we think it is. Cryptocurrency, somebody said, okay, we'll make a cryptocurrency. I'm not advocating it, but behind the dollar used to be gold and now it's nature. And it's not such a, such a mystery to think that we can, can start to consider that our money should be used to protect nature and not to uh, exploit it alone. I mean, it has to use some of nature, but not to the extent that it doesn't see the value of it, which is right now, the value of nature is basically transparent and invisible. You mentioned crypto. I won't get into that, but I'm still no, trying to figure you. this one out myself. Right. The, only right. thing I can, the only thing I can see that crypto has done is to create scarcity. That's the only thing they've done and it makes it valuable. And that's about the extent of it. You don't walk around with a crypto coin in your pocket in all probability. But let's go back to the financial instruments. They're very important because the financial markets will be affected by anything that happens, but they can affect what happens. Are there other proposals that are out there that along with this bond that you had talked about that would help us to focus on promoting a more sustainable society and overcoming some of these climate crisis problems? Well, there's a fascinating, um, you know, coral reef insurance where where parametric insurance, where if the wind speed reaches a certain point, uh, the insurance pays off immediately and the money goes to the uh, local governments who are charged with protecting the coral reefs. They're very often underfunded. And what's happening is the hurricane cycle is increasing. The severity of the hurricanes is growing. So the poor coral reefs, half of which are basically dead right now from other problems, um, gets smashed to smithereens. I mean, shocking to see it's really Humpty Dumpty. And the question is, how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together? You get divers in the water who literally go down and start cementing these little bits of coral together and try to rebuild the, the, the reef quickly after it has been smashed because coral will regrow if it, not too much time goes by. And the important thing there <laughs> is that the physical reef, if it's intact, can also be added to artificially. And in laboratories, they're creating uh, new breeds of coral that are bred to withstand ocean temperature rise, which is happening and can't be. 90% of the Earth's heat is now being absorbed by the oceans. And that's gonna keep on and keeping on. And the oceans are just gonna get warmer and the coral reefs are very stressed just by that one thing. And so if you keep the, the reefs intact that are, um, being subjected to physical problems while this other laboratory work is going on, eventually they can come together and make a stronger reef all the way around. So the coral reef insurance buys you time. But I'd like to go back to what you said about scarcity and crypto, not to get off on crypto, but you hit the sure, nail on the Please do, yes. Because scarcity is what we're pricing. You know, if you look up, you have 60 miles between you and disaster, 
excuse me, if you look up, you have, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> if you look up, you have 60 miles between you and disaster, between us and disaster. That's the little wafer of atmosphere that protects us from the solar heat, which is we are now loading it up with these greenhouse gases. So the value of that scarcity is what we're trying to price. You know, the more we use it up, the more expensive it should be to use it. And that's where carbon pricing gets in. That's where these carbon markets come in. They're not pricing nature per se, they're pricing the scarcity of that space. So when you go back to forests, what you're pricing is the scarcity of a healthy forest. Right now the forests are unhealthy and they're getting less healthy. So you're pricing again, the diminishing scarcity, the, the rising scarcity of the health of the forest. So this is a very critical thing to, to understand that the, the, the pricing is tied to the increasing scarcity of the resources we need. So supply and demand tells you the more supply, less supply, the more demand, the higher the price. The way it'll work in our society, no doubt about it. And when you were talking about the upper layer, it reminded me of the ozone layer and the major problem that we had with that. And uh, it was a United Nations ozone layer treaty, I think, on chlorofluorocarbons. Montreal Protocol, yeah. Montreal mm -hmm. Protocol that came out in 1987 that right. turned that whole issue around. And now the ozone layer is actually improving. But we're going to be talking about that and a couple of other things when we come back in just a second. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with the PBS or Community Access Television Station, or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're talking about an issue that impacts all 8 billion people on planet Earth, and that is the environment and how important it is to us and how we really need to focus a little more than what we have in the past. I guess today is expert on this topic. Paula DePerna just recently wrote a book called Pricing the Priceless, The Financial Transformation to Value the Planet, Solve the Climate Crisis, and Protect Our Most Precious Assets. Paula is a perfect title. You couldn't have, couldn't have said it more in <laughs> any more words, I don't believe. But let's Thank focus you. a minute. We were talking about the ozone layer treaty, which brings to mind, anytime I talk about the climate or any of these conferences, the UN pops into my mind because they've really been going back to basically Secretary General Kofi Annan, I guess, maybe even before him, but Kofi Annan in particular and uh, Ban Ki-moon and the other, Antonio Guterres, have uh, really pushed forward and rang the alarm bells about the crisis that we're facing on this planet. What role have you seen the United Nations play up to this point? And I know the UN is not a one world government. It can't make countries do things, but it does bring them together under one roof to work on problems like this, like with the Paris Climate Accord that uh, was in 2015, I believe, and those types of things. But what role has the UN played? What role should it and could it play in the future 
to move this topic forward and to get more people involved more quickly, be it the, the financial markets, uh, NGOs, uh, religious communities, whatever it may be. Yeah, well, you can even go back further to Boutros Ghali in 1992, which is really was the UN's, well, there was a big conference in 72 where the term sustainable development was first. Right, coined. in Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Yes. No, even before that, that was Stockholm. And why that's important oh. is, Okay. Oh, uh, I was not at that one. You're right. But, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, why that's important today is they gave a quite concise and very good definition of sustainable development, which was enabling the present generation to meet its needs while needs while not compromising the options of future generations to meet their needs. So it was an intergenerational compact from '72, and then 20 years later, and the UN's great contribution there was to to, to, to express the global compact, an agreement that we are not here for this moment, but ongoing moments. And you fast forward that to 92, to this fantastic Earth Summit, which was convened by the UN and where the issue of climate change really was first invoked, where the science was still a little bit, um, you know, uh, unclear, but generally the burden of proof, burden, the preponderance of the evidence was, leading to what we now know today. And that was a fantastic, amazing uh, uh, convergence of countries developed and, un and, and, and uh, uh, so-called underdeveloped at that time, which we know a term we no longer use. But the, the, and I was at that one. And all the negotiation was all about common ground, common ground, common ground. And they found common ground at that time. And it was a kind of a handshake that the developed countries would take on climate change first, and then the developing countries would bring themselves into the agreement later. And that was agreed by every nation on earth. But why the UN sometimes looks like it's not progressing is because in the meantime, national governments change. And so the UN's role, especially today, is to keep synthesizing that common ground and keep people moving together on a few common things and, um, you know, it's it's essential because without that railroad track, the train can't run. It's like trying to put 175 or however, however many countries uh, countries there are uh, on 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 a on a on a on a on a road that 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 doesn't exist. That so everybody's trying to like dig and find a road for themselves. Whereas the the, the UN is the road. It is the track. And for all of its um, flaws, it's the only track we have. It may be trying to do too much, but um, without it, you would have no progress on climate change. Absolutely none. And the, the private markets are very, um, are very uh, potent in this regard, as I just got through saying about these financial instruments. But to proceed on climate change, you need three things working together, science, policy, and capital. And they all run on different timelines. And the UN tries to bring them together, you know, run on the same timeline, work together, three wheels fly, you know, turning in a, in a reasonably concerted effort. And without that concerted effort, you, you have 175 different approaches and they'll never come together, in which case we won't solve the problem. It's too, it's too global and too, too uh, in need of a common approach. Big approach, a big approach, not just little individual actions. You have to take a macro view of the problem. You just can't have little micro initiatives. I mean, they're helpful, but that's not going to solve the problem. No country, 
no group of countries, no region will solve the climate change problem. They're not going to solve the human trafficking problem. They're not going to get rid of polio by themselves, and little bits and pieces here and there. And that's truly, you're absolutely right. And that is one of the advantages of the United Nations. It brings 193 countries of the world together to focus on these problems. And again, it's up to the countries to carry out the the policies. It's not up to the UN. They can, they can give you the technical expertise, provide background and all that type of information, but it's up to the countries to carry it out. Well, we're just about out of time, unfortunately. Let's, as we focus on what else can we do to really shine the spotlight on this problem and to make people more aware of what the problem is and especially to get the media on board. And uh, I'm in the media and believe me, they have dragged their feet on this climate change issue, in my opinion, anyway, (laughs) as I look at the various outlets. In fact, you've got some outlets that are even saying it's not even happening. I mean, you've got uh, all this misinformation out there, but what can we do differently? One thing is ignore the misinformation. You know, it's it's an expression called, you know, gambler's ruin, which I learned from my colleague, Richard Sanders. <laughs> you never, you never t- make a bet that if you lose it, you're ruined. So, you know, number one, don't play f- with fire. Um, you know, but, but joking aside, I mean, certainly um, we need to focus more on solutions. You know, the whole idea of addressing climate change as a headache needs to be abandoned and seen on the au contraire as a fabulous opportunity. We had the industrial revolution. Now we have the reindustrial revolution. And think about it, just about everything. If we just started looking for waste, I don't mean become, uh, you know, uh, uh, crotchety uh, uh, people never having fun, but just look, look for waste and think about that. Every building, every air conditioning system, every heating system, every... Uh, uh, a power source, more and more efficiency. That's jobs. You know, electricians, green energy. These are jobs. These are new skill sets, smart water meters. That's an IT job. You know, lots of people can be employed in this process of shifting from waste and emissions to no less waste and lower emissions. We're never going to get to zero. I don't believe in that net zero is possible, surely not in our lifetimes. But Maybe we could get there, but it's an it's a moonshot to use a cliche. And I guess the other thing would be, you know, for people um, to to use their money, you know, vote with your pocketbook, and that that includes what you buy. And I don't just mean again esoteric uh, boutique products that are super expensive. I don't mean that. I mean just look at what you're buying. Do you one need it, and two, do you need another one in two years? And then what are you doing with your cash? And what is your bank doing with your money? Where does, do they invest your savings? Where are they putting their capital? And then those who ha- are lucky enough to have investments in stocks and portfolios, there again, move that money from status quo to investments that enhance and address environmental problems because you don't lose money. That is a myth. That's an old story. Green investing actually is you know, acceptable return. It may not be like a hedge fund or crypto, but you don't lose money. And and so we should be moving our money from the bad side to the good side. And, and excuse me, back to GDP, that's an accounting issue as well. You know, looking at how we book our money um, and so that it shows up 
as an, a green investment as opposed to just an ordinary one. But there's plenty of power within the people. Um, but it can't be just based on sacrifice. It has to be based on really proactive measures and recognition of the, that this is the future of employment. Certainly is, and there is a lot of money in in green investments. There's no doubt about it. And there are some countries now they're almost completely green. They're almost totally out of fossil fuels. And if right. they can do it, the rest of the world can do it. And it's it really is going to be a net gain. Where there will be jobs lost, but there will be many more jobs as you mentioned a minute ago that will be accumulated. And that is what's going to make the difference. But Paula, well, congratulations on your recent book. It's got some very interesting ideas in it. And uh, we encourage everyone to take a look at it. But I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you very much. Appreciate your interest and um, have a good day. Thank you. I am Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.